And now, stay tuned for another episode of the Traumatic States of America. Welcome to the Traumatic States of America. Our main goal is to begin to heal some of the trauma we have suffered, both individually and collectively. I am your host, Dr. Lori Hood, and I will be talking with people from all walks of life who have suffered trauma in its myriad forms. Military veterans, attorneys, first responders, football players, stay-at-home moms, and many more. We will hear how trauma has not only affected them, but their families and communities as we take an in-depth look at what science has to offer and what can be done to prevent, mitigate, and help recover from trauma. I'd like to welcome Stephen Juge, who is an elite international lawyer based in Washington, D.C. He attended Tulane Law School and studied as a Marshall Scholar at Oxford, where he specialized in comparative law. Welcome, Stephen. Hello, Lori. Thank you. Nice to have you. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background? I kind of have the basics, I think, um, and just give us a little bit more detail about your, your background in law. Sure. Yeah, well, yeah, as, as you mentioned, after law school at Tulane in the U.S., I was uh, very fortunate to, uh, to be granted a Marshall Scholarship to, to study at Oxford. The, that, that's named after the, the Marshall Plan, uh, you know, of, of aid to uh, the conquered nations in Europe after World War II. Uh, so, so basically, the Marshall Scholarship Fund is, a, is the British thank you to America for the Marshall Plan after the war. So, uh, I studied uh, there at Oxford. I, um, the uh, one of the first defining moments about my, uh, you know, the very beginning, the outset of my legal career, uh, as in considering going to law school, was a, was a very very interesting experience. I I attended college at a at a sizable state university, and that state university had a law school. Well, at the time, the law school graduated or intended to graduate. Uh, a finishing class of 250 students, but they admitted 750 because of different, you know, uh, considerations of uh, folks who thought that lots of people who may not ultimately make it should nevertheless be given at least a chance. Mm -hmm. So they, in effect, eliminated by flunking out a third of the entering class at the end of the first and second year. And the story goes that they would, they would, on the first day of class, they would say to you, you know, look to your left, look to your right, look in front of you, look behind you. Three, three years from now, two of those three will not be here. I was going to say, that's one of the reasons I wanted to um, interview you is um, I have an inkling or some sort of understanding that uh, law school and the legal profession can be highly stressful and so you just pointed to an example of that. Um, so, so what did that do to you? Well, it's hard to overstate what the competitive factor in that would be. The so students were graded um, every semester, and grades were posted by name. You know, on the on the on the on the door of a classroom, if oh you will. My, oh my gosh! And so people people. 
and people would be given grades like 50, you know, when the minimum, when the minimum score to pass was a 70. And while I was an undergraduate, at least two law students, you know, committed suicide by jumping out of a high, uh, high floor dorm window. Oh my! And so it, it occurred to me that, uh, when I, when I decided I, I wanted to go to law school, uh, I felt I was a good enough student so that I could, I could pass. I mean, if I wasn't going to make A's, maybe I'd make B's or C's. I, I, it didn't occur to me that I'd make D's or F's. But on the other hand, it, it didn't seem very appealing to want to go through that experience. So actually, I applied there. I applied elsewhere. I ended up going to you know Tulane, which is a private school, of course. And my entering class at Tulane was 176. And 174 finished. One dropped out and one flunked out. So, you know, the, 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 the competition to succeed uh, was high and I'm sure similar, but this, uh, you know, seemingly traumatic experience of literally eliminating two thirds of the class all, along the way and the, 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 the outcome that it seemed to generate was something that I, I, I very much wanted to avoid. So I'm glad that I did. Right, right. So, so does that nature, that competitive nature, is that throughout the law profession and throughout law schools? Yes. What do you think it does to students? If you could just give us your point of view, you've been practicing law for a very long time. Um, in your point of view in the United States, what cost, at what cost are, are law students and lawyers becoming law students and lawyers? In retrospect, I think, and I should say that I don't intend by anything I say in this interview to be judgmental or cast aspersions on any, you know, group or individual or institution, but I I, I may say things in a way that sounds very direct so that the the point comes across. Agreed. Yes. That's exactly what I want. In retrospect, Lori, I believe it, it can create and can be seen as likely to create selfishness and isolation when in, in, in any profession and in any sort of sector in the world, it's so important to be aware that we're you know part of a bigger whole and have a team spirit and care about others and our, our colleagues and uh, you know, those we can help. So given that there's, I think, in all, you know, I think being humane, you know, uh, being a, being humanitarian, which is desirable, and suggest being unselfish, especially in certain situations where people need help, and and um, and you know, willing to give and help others, and being uh, you know a, a successfully social person. Mm-hmm. I think that that those uh, that 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 level of competitivity creates uh, you know selfishness. You know, what what's in this for me? How, how do I best succeed to compete for the best jobs? Because then when I went to law school as now, how you, how well you finish academically has a pretty very direct correlation to at least your, you know, immediate and short term, shorter term job prospects. Right. Um, right. And, and uh, there, there's, there's the age old issue at the time as, as to whether you, you know, share great outlines of courses you may get with others. And some folks, you know, may be in study groups where they share outlines, but I think um, having a great outline from somebody else of a course was certainly a treasure 
And right. the, the vast majority of folks I came across, at least at the time, uh, were, were, were not the most open or giving or sharing. Right. They, they didn't want to share. Well, they, they had a negative outcome. I mean, it was going to give someone else at least a, uh, a level playing field. Yes. Right. Um, so this, I just want to interject here. This reminds me, I um, was a research assist- assistant years and years ago, and I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to be part of a, a study. And this is just one study, but the outcome is interesting. So in this study, we looked at law students and medical students. And we um, had psychometric instruments and we um, tested them for hostility. So there was a hostility scale in the beginning of law school, in the beginning of medical school, and then partway through, and then in the end. And I think the hypothesis was that Law, you know, medical students are in a helping profession. They want to become doctors. They want to help each other or help others. And they would be low on a hostility scale, whereas law students would self-select for a competitive uh, field or a competitive career because they were competitive and thus, quotes hostile um, by this definition by nature. And what we found in, in a nutshell was that law school actually created hostility in students, that they went in about the same as medical students, but during and when they were finished, they, they rated, um, scored much higher on hostility scales. So that kind of, even though it's one study, and it was a long time ago, it kind of uh, supports what you're saying, that um, isolation and competitivity, competitivity um, lead to in my, in my view, stress and potential trauma. So, um, so tell me now if you had, um, a wish that was to be granted to you, what would you wish for the legal profession from here moving forward? I think one of the, one of the major things I'd hope for is a, broader sense of a, an attachment and adherence to the uh, goal of, of justice being done and, 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 and fairness and for clients and all those, you know, clients and others who interface with the legal system for their experience to be as humane and um, comfortable as possible. The, the, you know, the, the U.S. litigation system, as you know, is said to be adversarial. And of course it is. Our, our adversarial system is that, uh, there's, there, there, there are two separate parties and they're against each other. You know, it's X versus Y. And each side, uh, the, the, the process of arriving at the truth is an adversarial debate, if you will, you know, between the two sides. That has, developed over time in a way that produces a lot of incivility and a, um, I think, aberrant conduct, which doesn't take into account uh, normal human civility and, you know, human, human sensibilities. Uh, a lot of things about the litigation process are used to, you know, to discourage people, to humiliate them on witness stands. To um, you know, a, a lot of litigation involves 
scorched earth type policies, you know, to do everything you can to negatively affect the other side or to destabilize them. The system is geared not to, not to permit uh, taking unfair advantage or, or, or trickery. Uh, one of the, one of the you know, hallmarks of the process is meant to be fair notice and, a, and, a, and you know, a potential, you know, the right potential to reply and, and, um, and contest the other side's positions. So I think a, a lot of lawyers use all the all uh, lots of different tricks they can, such that the system doesn't necessarily produce a fair and open discussion and process that produces a, a just income, a, a just outcome. Right, right. Yeah, I, I I would absolutely agree. So you you um, brought up civility, and that touches on this podcast. Um, one of the things um, that is a goal of mine is that people are able to speak on this podcast and have any opinion they want, as long as it's not obviously inflammatory or, or um, damaging, as long as they engage in civil discourse. So I just want to remind the audience again what the definition of civil discourse is. Civil discourse is, is engagement in discourse intended to un- enhance understanding. Let me try that again. Civil discourse is engagement in discourse intended to enhance understanding. And I think that kind of covers what you were saying. Um, I don't know that, that uh, the definition for you know, litigation, what, what would it be if you, if you could give us, I'm sure that it's defined legally somewhere that the outcome of a trial should be blah, blah, blah. Is there, do you have something off the top of your head that you could give us? Well, obviously for, for, 99.9% of litigators, the, the objective of a trial is victory. You know, at, at, at any cost, subject to getting caught for, you know, breaking the bar rules or, or, or being directly untruthful. Um, the, the, the objective should be to have a fair process where, the, the, you know, the right, the right result comes out. I think that part of the competitive, the negative competitive spirit in the profession is produced by an overriding desire to win because that's how one uh, establishes and, and continues economic success uh, over time. And I think the constraints we've seen of a, more, of a more competitive economy have affected that negatively. I can remember, you know, years and years and years ago, you know, senior lawyers saying that, you know, at some time in the 30s, 40s, 50s, whenever you want to take a, you know, a date sort of from that distant past, um, things were, were a lot more civil. People were a lot more collegial. Well, what, what I've seen in my career is clearly that law has passed from being a profession to being an industry. A lot of that involves things like commoditization. You know, lots of things about the legal process have become standardized and systematized with lower, uh, you know, lower profit margins. Uh, the, you know, the ABA study on wellness specifically cites the fact that the, um, the legal profession is at a crossroads where its slice of the legal services pie is shrinking. So imagine the economic impact of a hugely, uh, an exponential growth in the number of lawyers with a, with a shrinking pie. So I think that creates the kind of competitive atmosphere which breeds uh, a um, incentives to succeed financially and from a marketing point of view at all costs. Uh, and that, and that these, these pressures, I think, have gotten 
much greater since, for example, things like the, the economic crash of 2008-9. That was the first of two episodes with Stephen Juge, who is an elite international attorney. In the second episode, we will focus on one specific statement that he made, and that is that the legal profession is at a crossroads. We will also talk about the landmark study done by Patrick Krill, the Hazelden Foundation, and the Betty Ford Center on lawyer wellness and substance abuse. So join us next time as we continue our conversation with Stephen Juge. Thank you for listening to the Traumatic States of America. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Lori Hood, go to LoriHoodPhD.com. The Traumatic States of America podcast is produced and engineered by Band Alle Productions at their studio in Washington, D.C.